Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode nine. In this episode, I talk with Indigo Young about anti-oppressive instruction. Do your instructional materials marginalize some children in your class or therapy sessions? Learn how to evaluate your materials for bias in this frank discussion about how to support all of the students you encounter. This conversation is part of a series on leading literacy change that I have created for a course I teach online at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out Podcast to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. I have invited Indigo Young today to talk about anti-oppressive interventions, and I will have uh, her introduce herself. I also have Norma Craffy here who will be talking with Indigo today as well. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. My name is Indigo Young. I am a speech and language pathologist. I specialize in pediatric spoken and written language disorders, and I'm a faculty member here at MGH Institute of Health Professions. Great. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Hi, my name is Norma Craffy. I'm a first-year doc student here at the IHP, and I'm a former public education teacher. I worked in pre-K to two, and then I was a reading specialist within the schools. Okay. Indigo, you've lectured on anti-oppressive instruction. So what is anti-oppressive instruction or intervention, and why is it important? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background, um, I've become really passionate about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the educational system, um, given my background working with children and families in a variety of different contexts. So one thing I love about the schools is that they are diverse and vibrant, but we um, are all aware that there are some serious issues in terms of um, equity within the schools and inclusion of our diverse populations. Um, one thing that is interesting about the Boston area in particular is that the Boston Area Research Initiative, which is a collaboration between Northeastern and Harvard, just did a study and released some data about how the Boston public schools are actually um, more segregated than they have been in recent history. So we, we know that there's this ongoing concern about uh, systemic racism within the schools. And so I have questions about how I and other clinicians and teachers can make sure that we're uplifting our students and making meaningful changes within a, within a flawed system. So although the overwhelming majority of clinicians and teachers really understand the importance of cultural competence, I, I know that it can be harder to know exactly what direct actions to take. So while thinking all of this over, I've, I've come across this idea of anti-oppressive intervention. Um, an anti-oppressive approach is um, an approach that both acknowledges that there are uh, inequities and marginalizations within our systems and then seeks to specifically address the marginalization. Um, so anti-oppressive practice in speech language pathology or education is about um, really seeking to correct the marginalization of certain groups of learners. Um, so when I have been thinking about this 
approach I've borrowed heavily from other fields that have well-established frameworks in anti-oppressive work. So there is social justice frameworks for education. Social work has a really robust um, uh, background and resources in anti-oppressive care and so does nursing. Um, so the approach that I'm building here in our curriculum is an approach that places cultural sensitivity and humility at the very forefront of the, the clinical relationship. So it's using cultural factors as the lens that we're looking at the specific educational issues rather than like an extra or an aside. Um, and so anti-oppressive intervention has three main goals. So it's seeking to affirm identities, specifically identities that have been marginalized in our educational systems. Um, it is seeking inclusion and building inclusive spaces in education, and it's also seeking equity and looking to address these inequitable outcomes. Um, and it's really two parts. So there's the first part is this sort of indirect client support. So that's things that the educator is doing on their own. So it might be thinking about issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, learning about it, reflecting, thinking about their own progress and their own growth and what areas that they need to brush up on. Um, and it's also direct action. So thinking about these issues as you're looking at assessment of students, as you're looking at instruction with the students, um, as you're making treatment choices, educational choices, and also this idea of advocacy for, for our learners. Um, and I thought quite a bit when it came to the terminology of it. So when you think about the, the name, the label anti-oppressive intervention, um, when we use the word oppression, we are directly acknowledging that certain groups of students are being oppressed within our educational world. Um, and then the prefix anti was specifically chosen over the, the prefix non. You might hear that, that in other places like non, non-racist, non-oppressive. And to me, that's sort of a more passive approach where, you know, we're not explicitly purposely being oppressive versus anti is a more direct um, approach where you're really actively seeking to um, to address this marginalization or oppression. Oh, that makes sense. That's very helpful to think about the terminology because even thinking about what to call this podcast, there were so many options. So I really appreciated that you provided that option. It's so thoughtful mm. too, and what it means. How do you speak up about these issues in your environment? I think that you know, with this course, thinking about speech pathologists, uh, reading specialists, educators, being in a position of leadership and a position to influence education practice, but also just influence individual children's lives. Mm -hmm. How do we empower them to do that? Yeah, I think that in the environment of being in the schools, um, it's really about taking on the idea of advocacy and also leadership. Um, and I think it can be challenging because sometimes it can require um, trying to change the status quo and, and things that have been in place. So one thing that's really helpful is to make sure that you have information or resources to back yourself up, um, going to the evidence um, in order to sort of present your case if you need to talk to other teachers or administrators, if you're talking about changing what sort of curriculum that you're using. Um, and I think there's many levels that that you can speak up at, as you were saying, whether it's how your own approach with your specific students um, versus talking to classroom teachers or having to go higher up in administration to try and, and speak up about issues. A really good resource 
that I'll make sure to give to you to include is um, by Teaching Tolerance. It's called Speak Up at Schools. And so it sort of gives you specific steps and how you can prepare yourself to speak up to different levels of people in, within the school system. And it, it talks, it frames it um, around bias and um, microaggressions and, and that sort of thing. But I think there is really helpful suggestions on how you can go about uh, preparing yourself to be that voice. And um, I think it sort of relates to like the bystander idea too, that sometimes you see things that are happening, but it takes an extra step um, to be the person who's taking on the responsibility of, of making the change. So you become the person that embodies the change you want to see, as they always say, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. this really ties to the podcast we just recorded earlier, I think, about crucial conversations. Yes. Because you have to have that that um, the verbiage and the confidence to have a tough conversation exactly. about these things. And, and it doesn't have to be tough, but it can be because there's so much ignorance and there's so much bias that's unconscious. Right. And people are really sensitive um, when it comes to talking about these things. Understandably, it can be really uncomfortable. Um, people can feel really nervous about how they're presenting the, themselves or being perceived. So I think the skills that go into the crucial conversations are really important when it comes to talking about these things as well. And I think they people might get defensive, right? Because oh, they absolutely. might think like, no, I am doing the right thing. Or, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and so approaching it as a way to educate versus, you know, just having the verbiage to be able to do that, I think is so important. Yeah. And I think that uh, everybody, most everybody is on the same page about having this shared goal of doing what's best for the children and, and best for education and best in how we're going to create people who are going to be the change makers in our society. Um, and so being able to come to this like shared goal in these crucial conversations can be really helpful. And also to talk about how it's, you know, less of the individual level, individual people doing things correctly or incorrectly and more about how we can change the, the system. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because then it's natural to be defensive. Mm -hmm. But if you have that shared purpose, then you, you have less tendency. Mm -hmm. And it shows mutual respect to say, we both have this purpose, let's work together. Right. As opposed to this is about what you did, what this person did. I think that does make a lot of sense. There's a lot of human psychology it's about making change, right? So yeah. it's this, it, this is a part of that. So this is Norma here. Yeah. Um, so Indigo, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for professionals working within public schools that um, might be trying to affect change, but are coming up against roadblocks and um, having pushback and not having a lot of success and how you can manage that without feeling burnt out and disillusioned mm. and disheartened by um, not only maybe your own school ecosystem, but just the state and climate of our country at the current time. Um, so any suggestions or um, pearls of wisdom or resources to share with those professionals? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is a real issue uh, when you're working in the schools and sometimes feeling like things are stacked against you. And I think one of the best things you can do is to try not to be an individual agent uh, against everybody else. Um, so it's really important to find collaborators, people who are on your team, people who can speak up for you and speak with you and give you a little more power behind your voice. And I think that also comes into the, the burnout aspect is that if you have a support network and a community, so you don't feel like you're sort of burning out on your own, that you can rely on each other. Some people can step up, other people need to step back. That can be really helpful. Um, I know that as 
a person of color who has worked in the school systems and uh, have often been one of the only or a few people of color within in systems. Sometimes I've had a seek like online community um, and finding spaces outside of my specific school or my specific district in order to find this community. Um, but also knowing that there could be people who do not share your same identities within the school system that can still be your, your collaborators. Oh, really great resources. Um, any of the online communities that you could suggest that educators might check out? I know that Twitter has um, some great Twitter conversations on certain nights regarding um, education and anything that um, you might suggest for people to check out. Yeah, so Facebook has a lot of groups. Okay. I don't know if I have one in particular that I want to recommend, but I think searching for your local area, like the Boston area, and um, finding other mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. that, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Norma, have you had communities that you've liked um, or Twitter communities that you can um, suggest? Not, I think that I'm still getting used to Twitter mm -hmm. and how to yeah. follow Twitter conversations. Yeah. So um, I need a tutorial to teach myself <laughs> yeah. on that first. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know that um, there is definitely within, there's like hip hop ed seems to be, you know, a, a, I've followed it. I haven't participated because I'm still not really getting um, how to under, how to participate in that effectively. Um, but I think that um, there seems to be, I know there's certain like, there's like the curriculum matters. Um, I don't know whether or not they, they speak about those, um, those issues directly, but there seems to be a few different groups. So that's good. Yeah, another place to look to is Instagram. Ooh. There are a lot of um, organizers, activists, yeah. and education specialists who you can find via searching hashtags who post things that are helpful. And you can also find sort of community within that, especially if you feel like you're burning out, you're the one mm -hmm. of whoever in your your institution working on these things it can be really helpful to come and see you know other people have these ideas other people have these mm -hmm. strategies and and to find collaborators that way too mm -hmm. i would think especially in this current climate it would be so critical to just reach out to those that are also you know in the same mindset and to really think of strategies that have worked in mm -hmm. some places and not others and how to move forward in that way right i think that makes a lot of sense I know that when you've lectured, um, you have talked about the Washington model for evaluation of bias content in instructional materials. I want to mm -hmm. make sure we cover that. It's, it's a, it seems to be a very important uh, model for educators to consider and speech pathologists. Can you tell me more about that model? Yeah, absolutely. So the state of Washington requires that school districts provide guidance on how to select curriculum and also how to adapt that curriculum um, and other instructional materials. So the Washington Models was a resource that was created to help educators learn more about bias in instructional materials and also how to evaluate your materials for bias. Um, and so it, it is a great resource. It provides guidelines for identifying bias, um, different biases to look for, um, and it also gives sample evaluation forms that you can then use on your own content, um, which is something that I've done here at the IHP. I, using some of the Washington models, I've had master's level speech and language pathology students take the forms and then look at the books that we had in our own clinic. And we were able to find some things that were good examples of things that we wanted to keep as literacy tools in our clinic. And we did find some things that um, we decided were not a great fit for 
our diverse Boston community and, and how we wanted to represent different populations. Oh, that's great. So what are some of the forms of bias that the report mentions? Yeah, so there are, they talk about sort of six ways in which things can be biased. Um, and I can explain some of those a little bit more, but I think that it's important to think about all of the different ways that people can be marginalized to think about the different sorts of biases we can see. So we talk a lot about racial bias, cultural bias, gender bias, but there's also things like um, physical disability bias, native language, occupation, family structure, body shape and size. So there are a lot of different things we want to think about as we're scanning to see who might be incorrectly uh, represented in our instructional materials. Um, but the six main forms of bias that you can find include, so they're invisibility, stereotyping, imbalance and selectivity, unreality, fragmentation and isolation, and then linguistic bias. Can you tell us about each of those a bit more? Absolutely. So an invisibility bias, it, it misrepresents populations of people by just not talking about them mm. by making them invisible. So an example of that would be a book about historical heroes that only lists men or examples of men who are historical heroes. So the very fact that we're not including examples of women who are historical heroes um, erases that narrative and we're presenting um, sort of a false history or an incomplete history to students. Um, stereotyping is another bias, and so a really um, easy and frequent example of this is like a gender stereotyping within our um, reading materials and other curriculum. So something as simple as, you know, this book is for boys, and so it includes sports, and um, this book is for girls, so it includes ballet. And, um, so that's some examples of stereotyping. Imbalance and selectivity is sort of similar to invisibility, but it, rather than completely omitting things, it's sort of doing this like false emphasis on one group's narrative. So an example of that is um, thinking about how America was founded and putting the emphasis specifically on Christopher, Christopher Columbus and what he did and his perspective and the perspective of the um, pilgrims rather than having a more balanced perspective that also talks about the natives who are here and their experience um, with, with the founding of America. Um, the fourth example, there, or the fourth bias, type of bias was unreality. So this is sort of the idea about like putting on rose colored glasses to look at things. So um, maybe you're talking about historical facts but you're really coloring them in a way that is inaccurate and you're, you're not giving students the opportunity to look at a more nuanced version of things. So um, a couple of examples from this are um, from, from real textbooks that have been published in different areas with some backlash. But one example um, said, is talking about, again, the, the establishment of America and, and talking about the First Nations people agreeing to make space. Um, for the pilgrims. And another example is talking about the Atlantic slave trade and calling the slaves workers who have come over. So while you're acknowledging that there was a slave trade, you're really not being real in what happened. 
Um, That's, those examples shock me. <laughs> I can't believe that that would be written. And they're I mean, frequently it, taught in schools today. There's, you know, something really? that's still within curriculum, um, you know, classic readers or really? um, books that if you go to the book fair and you are just doing a survey of what books might be out of your local book fair, um, there are many misrepresentations of, of our history within curriculum today in schools. And I'm sure many are subtle. These are really egregious. Right. These are some really yeah, which is obvious yeah, examples, yeah, right. but you're right. There are more subtle examples uh -huh. and um, it's dangerous because then we are educating people without full understandings of the context and what happened and it impacts how people are going to be able to think critically about modern day issues and, and what's happening. If they're lacking this more nuanced and complete picture of, of history. seems like it creates also a narrative of um, not to not taking any responsibility. Mm. You're like, oh, this somehow this was what you wanted anyway. Exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. So these things just happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think by by omitting that from the history, it creates a culture in which um, children are raised to not, like you said, understand that context and to why it's so urgent and so necessary to to create a shift in it, mm -hmm. in how we're teaching and what we're using to teach and how we're speaking and addressing and like you said, being um, making sure that we're doing the anti-oppressive instead of the, the non-oppressive right, right. approach. And how if we did that, perhaps children and maybe by in which their families and communities might be able to um, come to an understanding of experiences that aren't their own and be more open to how we create that change in the society. That, that makes sense. But Absolutely. That's such an important piece you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two other types of bias that you might find in, in instructional material. So another one is fragmentation and isolation. Um, and this we see fairly frequently. So, so this is the idea about um, putting these other voices, including them, but as like an aside mm -hmm. or like um, a box rather than mm -hmm. the, the context. And, I, and this happens a, a lot. Um, the Boston area has a free, um, uh, shoot. What is it? What do you think? Uh, the conference. Oh, conference. A free oh, conference. conference. Okay, yeah. Uh, which is about yeah. social justice and education. Oh, okay. Um, and I always recommend that, mm -hmm. that people attend. And I went to an interesting talk that talks about just this, um, this specific type of bias in our curriculum. We're saying that, you know, in every content area, so say it's music mm -hmm. and we're spending eight months out of the year talking about European composers. Mm -hmm. And then there's one month that's the multicultural music month. Mm -hmm. And so we're really saying that, you know, this is not the standard or like the shared norm. This is like an extra that, you know, we'll, we'll bring in when we have time um, and how isolating that can be. And so we see that in across all content. So think about like in ELA, like who are the authors that we're reading? Whose stories are we talking about most of the time versus on special occasions? Um, and then, so the last form of bias is just linguistic bias. So this is about your specific word choice. So this can be things like, you know, fire men versus mm -hmm. fire people and just the ways in which your specific words are including or, or excluding people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to the conference. Do, is that a conference that is open to yes. people outside of Boston too? Do you know? Is it something you register for? You do register, um, but I don't imagine that it's exclusive okay. to people mm -hmm. in Boston. Mm -hmm. I think that 
you know, if people want to come in and participate, mm -hmm. that the organizers would be happy. I, I want to put that link on our resources page because I do think that's just another way to spend some concentrated time to think deeply about these issues mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. How can parents be involved? So the the Washington Models for Evaluation of Bias um, specifically specifically talks about including parents. They suggest forming curriculum review committees in which people are are specifically going through the curriculum and to make sure that parents are involved in that mm -hmm. process. Um, which makes a lot of sense to me, and I think in a broad sense too. So for one thing is that it's really hard for us to be constantly aware of our own biases. I think everybody, a lot of people in education are, are trying to be aware of their own biases, but it, that's one of the benefits to having diverse representation is that other people are going to come in with other experiences and other perspectives that can maybe help you in a blind spot that you might have. Uh, and another reason is when we think about this idea of inclusion and making sure that different community people um, are included in the decision making, having parents there with a voice um, is really showing that, you know, their input is important and their expertise are important and that they have a say in how um, their children are being taught to read. That's, that's, that's very important. How, you know, thinking about these biases and, and some of these biases just blow my mind, to be honest. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, for the listeners, how can they analyze, you know, children's books for racism, sexism, and these biases? Yeah. So um, the Washington Models talks a little bit about this, and they have a few steps. And in my lecture about this, I um, sort of whittled it down to eight steps that I think are really easy and applicable for anybody who's looking to do a bias review. And so um, one of the first steps is a really easy, which is just to scan the illustrations. So you want to be looking out for stereotypes. You want to be looking out for tokenism. So are they including diverse people, but not in any sort of like meaningful ways or just as side characters. So that's, you can just pick up a book and flip through and oftentimes that can give you the information that you need about the book. You also want to look at the storyline. So this requires thinking about, you know, what is being presented as good? What is being presented as normal? Who are the characters that have power roles? Um, are they including social problems? Uh, and are the social problems being talked about in a nuanced way? Um, and again, trying to look for stereotypes in, in the characters. You also want to look at the uh, lifestyles of the characters and their relationships with each other. So again, looking for what is being represented as good and normal. Um, and who has the power roles, like maybe looking at family dynamics or um, who has leadership roles. The fourth thing that you might want to do is to notice the heroes. So not only who they're choosing as heroes, but also who, who, whose interest is the hero really serving? So if you want to go back to that Christopher, Christopher Columbus mm -hmm. example, yeah. you know, and calling him a hero, he's a hero for who, mm -hmm. um, and, and what were other people thinking of him and, and their, their experience of what he brought. You also want to consider the effects on a child's self-image. So, you know, is this book going to tell a child that they, they or people like them are beautiful, that they have goodness in them, um, that their storyline has positivity? You know, sometimes we do include more diverse narratives, but it, 
but is it always, you know, talking about the struggle of that group of people and their oppression, or do they get to be good and happy and have uplifting stories about just being people in the world who are living like everyone else? Um, Something that is also important is to consider the author and the illustrator's backgrounds and perspectives um, and thinking about what they're bringing to the table and if really they're the person who should be telling the storyline. And I think this um, can be really difficult sometimes. I, I read a book that at first glance, I really loved it. Have you all read that Julian Wants to Be a Mermaid? No, I haven't. Oh, no, I haven't. It's really... I saw it on a bookshelf. It was really stunning. It was about this boy who wants to be a mermaid. He goes to um, like a Caribbean festival and sees people dressed up really beautifully. And his grandma uh, is really supportive and accepting. Um, and at first glance, it's a lovely story. And I still think it's a lovely mm -hmm. story. But then when you want to consider this nuance of like, who is the author? Mm -hmm. And so the author does not belong to the community that she was writing about. And there have been some fair criticisms mm -hmm. about her portrayal of um, the culture that she's speaking about. Um, and, and not to say that that should mean that you cross that off your list of, of things that you use, but that you're just thinking about these things and maybe even having these conversations about the story as you're using it with, with, with children. Another thing you want to do is to scan for loaded words. Um, and this is again, thinking about the linguistic bias or if there are, phrases or, or language choices that are problematic in our in modern culture and also looking at the copyright date you know some of the classics are classics and they're great um but it it really wasn't until more recently in history that we started really thinking about you know these issues of um positive representation and inclusion within our books and our curriculum. Mm -hmm. I think that's something I run into a lot, actually, is that with my friend group, it's they, they're all about the classics and they mm -hmm. want to read books, you know, rightfully so, that maybe made them feel good, you know, and they feel this kind of tie to those books, but they're not necessarily always representing the the best, you know, and the, the narrative that is the most appropriate. And it doesn't, they don't often meet these uh, criteria. Mm -hmm. And so I've really had to even think about myself too and making sure that the books that I include are not representing stereotypes mm -hmm. or you know, non-factual information. I think that's really, really critical. And I've personally found as a parent and educator that books can be such a nice platform to have these deeper discussions. Right. In, in a way that is presented. I mean, we know as humans, we learn best through narrative. So, you know, having that kind of um, almost like a third party that's present in your discussion is the book, mm. but then you can talk around it. And mm -hmm. then there's some narrative there too. Right. I, I think it can be so powerful. Yeah. And I think it's really important to consider bias in the books that we're reading with our children um, because we all develop unconscious bias and uh, racial bias starts developing at age seven or earlier, and it's pretty, it's pretty much established by age 10. And so any time that we can give children um, the opportunity to see other perspectives and to maybe not have their categories so singularly dimensional, I think it's really important. Again, this idea about non versus anti. Mm -hmm. Anti is taking a, a purposeful, assertive approach to, um, to fighting against that mm -hmm. as best we can. Is there a particular resource that you might point educators towards and to um, 
looking for books that not only might tackle um, and um, issues and then also have um, a diverse representation, but as you mentioned, maybe not only be written and illustrated, but maybe even published um, by the same group that is trying to be represented within the text. One great resource is it's booksforlittles.com, uh, where they have, they're specifically trying to find storylines um, and representations that are positive, that might challenge some stereotypes. Um, so that's a, that's a good place to start. What are some books you would recommend for our listeners that they might like to, to learn from as well? Do you have any books that you like? Like storybooks? Uh, no, more for adults. Mm. Do you have any that you really like? I would have to think about that. Okay, we, we can put some on the put some on the uh, resource page. Too. Yeah, absolutely. I read a book recently, uh, Waking Up White, and I, it was really very interesting to think about the white privilege that you have unconsciously and just the narrative, you know, uh, that I was taught in my, you know you said by 10, these biases can happen. And even though I consider myself very educated and advocate, it was very eye-opening to think about um, these different aspects. And one of the most eye-opening uh, part of that book was the author was talking about a class she took where they just, they mentioned how often do you discuss race? And it was very clear in the class that the persons of color talked about race almost every day. And then the persons uh, that were white, they talked about it very rarely, if ever. And that was just a really eye-opening uh, difference that happens, you know, just happens in the family culture and right. that I think is important to be aware of and also something that we can change. Mm -hmm. um, and it also made me think in that book just about changing infrastructure um, and how that can have such a powerful influence and in terms of how we're thinking about working together as groups. Um, and then also just this idea of continual openness to change. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up in your own personal example of, you know, the, the learning never stops. And even if you are thinking about these things, our social climate is constantly changing. And this is not sort of like a one and done type exposure. Where you really need to be evaluating yourself, finding your own challenge zones, um, trying to figure out what it is that you don't know that you need to know more of. And it's, it's an ongoing process. Absolutely. You have this quote that I love that I'll end on, um, and you say diversity, this is a quote you had in your, your lecture, diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. I thought that was a great quote, and I really appreciate your time. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.